Biomass Fermentation. This episode will tell you all about it. Together with Chief Scientific Officer of Nature's Find, Debbie Yaver, we get into the weeds. You will learn about three types of biomass fermentation, how they are different from precision fermentation, and why fungi are such wonderful solutions for everything, from alternative proteins to plastic replacements to biodiesel. Nature's Find has raised a total of 500 million US dollars. They are working on two kinds of cream cheeses and two different breakfast patties. How? Using a badass fungus that was discovered in a NASA-funded project. More about that in a few minutes. This is episode two of our season on biotech and food. For an introduction, check out our previous episode. This one is again a bit technical, but also packed with lots of valuable information. Let's jump right in. Red to Green is the most in-depth podcast on food and agriculture sustainability. Covering each topic in over 12 episodes, let's move the food system from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt, and you're listening to Season 6, Biotech and Food. You're growing fungi to give me cream cheese. How does that fit together? How, why, <laughs> where does cream cheese taste like fungi and how do you manage that? <laughs> the fungal biomass, it's grown and then deactivated to kill the fungus. And then that is our ingredient. It is high in protein. 45 to 50% of the material is protein. It is also high in fiber and it has all of the amino acids. It's a, a complete protein. It has a texture, but it's neutral tasting. So it can be put into food items, both sweet food items and more savory food items. For cream cheese in particular, that ingredient, the biomass, is mixed with water to make a milk. And then it goes through a traditional fermentation to make cream cheese. So it's basically that the milk that is used in traditional cream cheese is replaced with the milk that's made with the fungal biomass. Maybe let's try to explain the whole process. If we really start from the beginning, Nature's Find wanted to create a dairy replacement. And then the question was even, what do you even grow? How did you decide in which direction to look? So it's an interesting question. And I would say it wasn't a straight path. So the company starting was called Sustainable Bioproducts. And it started based on a discovery that one of the co-founders, Mark Kozeval, made when he was a graduate student at Montana State University. So he was working on a NASA and then NSF-funded project where they were funding work to look at what sort of organisms were living in extreme environments. In Yellowstone, he isolated a fungus, which is our favorite now, called Fusarium strain flavolapis. That strain initially, actually, when Sustainable Bioproducts was formed, it was formed with the intent of using that organism to produce biodiesel from waste, from plant waste, for instance. It was part of the period of time where there was quite a bit of work going into making bioenergy fuels from plant waste. And this organism is quite good if you grow it under the proper conditions at producing high levels of lipids. And those lipids were ideal to make biodiesel. A little side note, lipids are a fatty acid. So fatty, waxy, or oily compounds. 
and Nature's Find was founded 2012, so this was quite a while ago. That was during a time when gas prices were quite high, or oil prices, I should say, were quite high. And so that was driving all of the investment into using microorganisms to produce fuels. When oil prices went down, of course, a startup company has to look and say, how are we going to be attractive to investors and make a business that's going to be profitable? And that led to looking at using this organism in some different areas. And when they were doing the work for biodiesel, what they noticed is that they could grow this fungus actually on, if you think about a cafeteria tray, you can put liquid in it, in the bottom of it. And if that liquid has all of the nutrients, the food that the fungus needs to grow, if you include the fungus in that liquid and you keep the cafeteria tray stationary, you don't move it, it actually grows on the surface. And what was observed is that the mat actually, the mat, meaning the fungal biomass growing on the surface, looked a little bit like raw chicken. And that got one of the investors to say, hmm, I wonder if this could be used for food. And of course, already there was a fusarium strain being used by Marlowe Foods to produce corn, which had been eaten for a couple of decades in the UK as a, a non-meat alternative. And the product was called corn, C-U-O-R-N. And so that took them down the route of using it to produce food. And that then led to research to, to sort of narrow down the best conditions to grow it on the surface of liquid so that the biomass afterwards had a neutral taste and had good nutritional composition. And when you were creating biodiesel, so you were using food waste or side streams, growing the fungi on it, which had a rather high amount of lipids, so oil, and then extracting the oil and using that for the biodiesel. Is there any correction to that? And do you consider going back to that now that the oil prices are so much higher? I would say for right now, our, our limitation to how much food product we can make and sell is how much of the phi ingredient we can make. And of course, we're continuing to scale it. We have plans to build a new production site. So we're really focused on the food area right now. But I would never say never. It's a possibility at some point that we might go back to that or to consider other areas, other space where we believe our innovation and our technology could help meet a need that we believe our organism could be used for. Let's maybe contrast it with precision fermentation. They are quite different, yet they oftentimes get put into a rather similar bucket, or they oftentimes are together in the debate, precision fermentation and biomass. Uh, why do you think is that the case? And how close do you see yourself or how far apart do you see yourself from precision fermentation? So maybe I'll start with the last question, and that is, I believe we are fairly far apart. You know, with biomass, we're starting with an organism that was found in nature and has not been at all genetically modified. We're actually growing it, fermenting it, and taking the actual organism itself and using that as a, a main ingredient in a product. In precision fermentation, you're using the organism, let's say a fungus, for instance, we could take our fungus and we could engineer it to produce a particular protein. We would ferment it and the first step after fermentation would be separating the biomass, the fungus, from the culture broth and the culture broth then would contain 
the product, the protein that you want it to produce. And so precision fermentation is all about producing one protein that has a given functionality that you want to use. Whereas biomass fermentation, you're actually taking the whole microorganism and using that as your final product. So they're different. For us, we're trying to maximize how much the fungus is growing, how much biomass is produced in precision fermentation. You actually want to balance it. You don't want maximum biomass produced. You actually want just enough biomass produced that you can maximize how much of your specific protein you want to produce is produced, right? that is your product. The biomass is in some way wasted. The carbon, the sugar that you have to put in the fermentation, you want the majority of that to go to your protein of interest and not to the biomass. So just to make it clear, in precision fermentation, what you grow, let's say some microbe, would just be the machinery. You really care about optimizing the quantity of what this machinery excretes and produces. Let's say protein, lipids, or whatever you want to make. So each precision fermentation process usually only produces one very specific outcome. In biomass fermentation, the whole thing is your product. In a later episode, we will also explain its use in a cacao alternative, where they grow a fungus over the grain barley, and the whole thing is used to make something that seriously tastes totally like cacao. But yeah, the more we learn about it, the more we realize precision fermentation and biomass fermentation seem to not be as close to each other as they sound like. So why are they constantly put together in one bucket? I think the reason they're put together is that in the industry in general, in industrial biotechnology, in the alternative protein space, one of the limitations right now is large-scale fermentation capacity. And of course, you can use that large-scale fermentation capacity either for biomass fermentation, where your product is biomass, or you can use it for precision fermentation to produce a given protein of interest. But it's not necessary for all types of biomass fermentation. So as far as I've done my homework, (laughs) is liquid and solid state. Could you differentiate them a bit? Yes, I would say there's three different categories of fermentation. Of course, there's liquid um, bioreactor, large-scale fermenters, where, as I mentioned, you're typically, although not always, you're putting in the liquid that contains all of the nutrients, the food that your organism needs to grow, inoculating the organism into it. Typically, in most cases, you're aerating, you need to get oxygen into it, so you have mixing going on. You can actually use that to produce biomass also. We call it submerged fermentation because the the organism is submerged in the liquid. But the goal there isn't to produce one given protein, it's to produce again the biomass. And afterwards, the first thing they do is to separate the fermentation broth from the biomass. The second kind of fermentation would be a traditional solid state fermentation. So that is in some sort of big trays where typically it is a solid that the organism is growing on. For instance, mushrooms are grown this way, where you might have sawdust and peat and other food for the organism are put in a tray and inoculated then with the organism, the fungus, to either make fruiting bodies, mushrooms, or to make mycelia. And then after fermentation, you can almost take, if you want to say a knife or something to cleave off the top layer, which is your growth of biomass. The third kind of fermentation is the kind that we do, and that's a liquid air surface. So 
it's the substrate, the nutrients and food the organism are growing on are liquid like they are in precision fermentation, the submerged fermentation, but they're put in a big tray. The trays are stationary. Things aren't being mixed like they are in a submerged fermentation to keep oxygen transfer going, to give the organism enough oxygen. And the organism then grows similar to solid state as a layer on top. Afterwards, then the trays can simply be tilted on their side and the biomass mapped, which is a sort of a big mat, it almost looks like a mat of dough, can be then harvested. So those are really the three different kinds. The end goal can be similar in all cases if the product you want is biomass, but the format that they're grown in and the types of materials, nutrients, food that you're giving to the organism will be different because the organism is experiencing a very different environment in those three different formats. Okay, 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 interesting. And just to really get it straight, so precision fermentation is always liquid and submerged. Biomass fermentation can go different routes, which are usually either liquid submerged or solid state, or in your case specifically, liquid air surface fermentation. Correct. That is how I would describe it, and I assume that is how others would describe it. <laughs> okay. You were saying beforehand that you were sort of pointing out our product has all amino acids. And I want to touch a bit upon the ingredientization of the industry that, for example, specifically with precision fermentation, you're doing one protein usually, or one other kind of very small scale, clean ingredient isolate. So you've been in both fields and how much do you now value the importance of whole, more complex biomass products? How do you judge the nutritional and health value of these isolates? When I think nutritionally, it really is the final food product. What does it look like nutritionally? And then the next level would be to ask, what are the ingredients? And when you have a biomass ingredient, that biomass is bringing in a complex mixture of proteins, a complex mixture of fiber, of other carbohydrates, of some vitamins and minerals. So you don't have to add as many other ingredients to the food product to get the full nutritional benefit because the ingredient itself is already highly nutrient dense and rich. With precision fermentation, when you're going after a particular specific protein, typically you're not doing that for nutritional content itself You're doing it because that protein has some functionality, some specific function that when you use it as an ingredient in food, you're going to bring that function to the final food. They're quite different from one another. Most single proteins themselves, you won't get the same nutritional benefit from that one protein as you would from a mixture of protein and carbohydrate and fiber. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so how would you judge the different go-to markets? The precision fermentation seems to take longer. Also regarding regulatory approval, what's the regulatory approval like for your products? So the regulatory approval for biomass products, I would say, varies. Most of the organisms that are being used as biomass products, as ingredients for food, are being produced with an organism that has been used before or eaten somehow by humans before. So they're able to file a generally recognized self-affirmation to the FDA to get approval. 
if it is an organism that has been eaten before, you don't even need to go through that. If it is a new organism, that there's no history of consumption by humans, then you do have to go through a regulatory process. I would say it's typically shorter than that for precision fermentation because by precision fermentation, 99.99% of those organisms that are producing, being used to produce a product by precision fermentation have been genetically engineered. So the regulatory route is a little bit longer because of the concerns over a genetically engineered organism and the product coming from a genetically modified organism. I think for us, from conception of prototyping into food product and then getting the go-ahead to go to market or getting our grass, no questions to our grass notification from the FDA, it was probably about a year and a half or two years. So we went to the market quite fast. What Debbie keeps referring to is an approval process by the Food and Drug Administration. In the United States, it's called GRAS, G-R-A-S, short for Generally Recognized as Safe. Any substance that is intentionally added to food is considered a food additive and needs a review by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration of the US. Usually, the FDA doesn't do own studies. It relies on an independent panel of recognized experts to review the documents and studies handed in by the companies. If the administration agrees, they publish a letter stating they have no further questions. Here's the fun fact. The FDA maintains a list of over 3,000 ingredients in its database called Everything Added to Food in the United States. You will find a link in the show notes. You were saying that your organism has not, or like your fungi actually, has not been in any way edited. The Mr. Flavalapos, something Flavalapos, <laughs> by the way, I love Very that name. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, so you wouldn't have any issues getting approved in Europe or elsewhere? We should not. I'm sure in different jurisdictions, we will get different questions because they don't just look at the organism you're using, but they look at your whole process, including what are you putting into the growth medium, the nutrients and the food the organism needs, and then how are you processing it after? What sort of safety test have you done and all those? And it's not harmonized around the world what sort of concerns different jurisdictions will have. We've gotten approval now in a handful of different countries, and we expect to get approval over the next few years in several others. We had a season on plastics and plastic alternatives, food packaging, and there we talked to a company creating a styrofoam replacement from fungi. The interesting thing is they were saying, well, the best thing is they can, again, use side streams and, and food waste. And I'm wondering how much that is still a consideration, because once you move from something like packaging or biodiesel to a food product, I guess where the fungi grow on becomes a bit more critical. Yeah, absolutely. Growth media, it's very important that those are food grade because you're product is ultimately going to be consumed. If you're making packaging or if you're doing biodiesel, you can use a lot of waste side streams and such. It would be much harder to do that with a food product because with a food product, you really have to know that the process is very robust. So every time you produce the ingredient, the inputs are the same and the output is as expected. Whereas if you're doing biodiesel or you're doing packaging and such, you have the ability to use different waste streams, if you want to say, right? 
different food for the fungus to grow on. You don't have the same limitations. Exciting news, I just signed a book contract together with my co-author, the journalist Nadine Filko. This book will be a guide for investors, corporates and individuals answering the big question. What should we focus on to change our food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green? It will cover food waste packaging, soil health, all proteins and much more. Because it's so much research, we're looking for two industry researchers to support us in fact-checking and researching for the book. As the initial draft will be in German, it's really important to be able to speak German. These are pro bono positions, but they will be a fantastic way to learn and to get credited in the book and as part of Red to Green. It will be published in German and English and hopefully also as an audible book. <laughs> You'll find more info and potentially more ways to get involved with Red to Green on redtogreen.solutions. The link is also in the show notes, redtogreen.solutions. Fungi and algae are truly impressive. They can create anything from meat replacements to plastic alternatives and whatnot. Recently, a company announced an algae-based replacement for methyl cellulose. Methyl cellulose is a filler used to add bulk rather than more real ingredients to processed foods. You can find it if you check out the ingredient labels of a lot of plant-based products. It's a cheap additive that allows processed food manufacturers to increase the weight of a product, but it doesn't contain any nutrients. It's synthetically made from cellulose. While safe for consumption, it has gotten lots of criticism. Many plant-based companies who use biomass fermentation as their core process have a shorter, cleaner ingredient list. There's just less that you need to stitch and bind together. One reason for this is that many fungi have a strong texture on their own. Nature's find is using something called filamentous fungi, and they are not the only ones. There's a lot of startup companies that have popped up that are using filamentous fungi for one use or another, right? Everything from food to fuels, to, to packaging, as you said, to even biomaterials to make textiles. So it's been exciting because I've been someone who's been working in filamentous fungi with filamentous fungi now for 30 plus years to see sort of this renaissance before. They've been used industrially for a long time to produce industrial enzymes, right? It's been really fun to watch the last several years, the attention they're getting and the recognition that There's so much diversity out there of different types of fungi, um, and they can do so many different things that the innovation that's happening in the space to me is very exciting as a scientist. The filamentous fungi, are they like a specific type, like a specific group of fungi? And what makes them different from, from the rest? Yeah, so fungi include yeast, right? And most yeast are, you, know, you can think of them as oval organisms. Filamentous fungi grow in long filament, right? They grow these hyphae that are really long filaments. It allows them to grow and seek, if you want to say, nutrients in food, right? At a pretty big distance from where they originally started. And because of that, they have the ability to produce a lot of enzymes that allow them to break down a lot of complex substrates that exist, right, in nature, whether it's plant waste or various different types of substrates that 
Morphological difference, growing as long filaments versus budding from an oval, making one oval to another. That morphology gives them interesting properties if you're talking about things like packaging or if you're talking about uses like for textiles or for biomass for food too. So if you would like to change the taste of your end product, where would you attack? Would you change the biomass that you're using? Would you do something with the fungi? Would you change the process? Good question. You would probably look at all, all of those possibilities. By changing the growth media components, the food that you're using to grow the fungus on, its nutrients can have an impact on the flavor profile, as well as the process, what temperature you're growing it at, how you are processing it after harvest, the rinsing you do, the drying you do, the freezing you do. The whole process can have an impact on the sensory. It would be easier to look at process changes and the impact on sensory than trying to understand how to alter the organism to get a particular sensory change. Not that the latter is impossible, It's not impossible. It's just, it would take much longer. Like any company, we have a limited number of resources. So we're very much prioritize what we're working on. If we had unlimited resources, we would probably look at both changing the process as well as changing the organism, knowing that changing the organism would be a longer play. So what are the ways in which the organism could be genetically changed? What is the difference between genetic engineering and gene editing? Debbie and I got into a rabbit hole talking about super funky and interesting technologies like mutational and computational breeding. That's something that I haven't heard of a lot in the food tech industry and that should be discussed way more. To spare you an information overload, you will hear it as a bonus episode on Thursday. If you would have 50 million and you could invest it in some kind of specific solution, or even if you have a startup crush, that's also very welcome. Apart from Nature's Find, where would you invest it in? If I had 50 million and I wasn't really worried about how quickly I was going to get a return, I would very much focus on the area of CO2 capture and being able to use that CO2 then to produce products. I think it's going to have a, a big impact on the environment and we're already seeing it as a reality. And there's companies like Lonsatech and others that are doing this. That would be where I would put my money. Interesting. Yeah. And what is a controversial opinion that you have or something that you hear that you generally disagree with in the biotech space? I would say that the hype around synthetic biology, and I say hype because I do believe it's been hyped quite a bit. There's no doubt that there have been a lot of tools and technologies developed that allow us to construct genetically modified organisms much faster. But the challenge is you still have to be able to identify from all those organisms you've made one that is able to economically produce the product at scale. And there's been quite a bit of upheaval in the synthetic biology space too, if you look at the companies that are in that space. I sincerely hope that the hype and then some of the turmoil that's happened isn't going to prevent folks from recognizing those tools and techniques are very powerful. We just need to recognize that they're not solutions overnight. And I hope that the industry and those approaches, it still recognize the value that they bring. And I think it's a good sign that the U.S. government, the Biden administration just announced this week their 
focus on biomanufacturing, where synthetic biology is one of the elements and pillars in it. But we still, I think we have to be careful as scientists not to overhype when we have new discoveries, the value and how quick we're going to see that value. We have to be realistic also. Yeah, yeah. I guess most industries go through this cycle. Yeah. There must be also some kind of turn, just like you have the Gartner's hype cycle, which probably correlates with it, like the boom and the bust and the long, treacherous road of desert in between until the next hype and the actual success of the industry eventually. And then in between somewhere it's, is the consolidation, lots of buying up of competitors. Yeah, yeah. that's just to be expected Absolutely. in some way, shape or form. Yeah, Debbie, it was really great to talk to you about biomass and all the nitty gritty stuff in between. It was great talking to you too, Marina. I'm glad we had a chance to meet. Do you keep explaining biotech to investors? Do you want to help your friends or your mom understand what the hell you're doing? Is there someone in your life who likes sci-fi and food and would be excited that this stuff is real? Well, we would appreciate if you share the podcast. Just send them this episode. One minute effort on your side, a great step in the understanding of biotech on the other side. A special thanks to our senior audio editor, Celeste Gupta, reviewer Robert Griffin, and Haruka Sakurai, industry researcher of the season. Until next time, let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.